Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Grab a seat, everybody. How are we this morning? Good. Hey, today's a good day. Let me tell you why. One is we saw five kids get baptized this morning, right? That's a beautiful thing. I'm serious. Regardless of whether or not this sermon is any good, if you don't come excited about that, you got your priorities in the wrong places. I'm just telling you right now, everybody. All right? Two, we're doing communion today, and that's always good. And for three or four of you, it's a celebration because it's gluten-free. For all the other ones, you know, it's because we love each other. All right, everybody? We are in the Lord's Prayer. That's in Matthew 6. It's week four. And like Andy talked about, so far, we've been through about two-thirds of it. This is what we've covered to date. We've said... Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And like we said last week, the Lord's Prayer builds on itself. It sets us up towards something, to something. So the context of this was Jesus was in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, surrounded by friends and religious leaders. And he said, guys, you're praying the wrong way. Not necessarily like there's a way you pray where God doesn't hear, but they used all these words and the words lacked meaning. And he said, guys, when you pray, do it like this. And he launches into the Lord's Prayer. And he gives us some insights in simply what posture and position to take before God. And he says, when you pray, understand your relationship to God first and foremost, our Father. Run into prayer with confidence because you're his kid, because you're in his family. May that never cause you to not pray because you don't think you're good enough or God doesn't want you to or he won't hear or doesn't matter because he is your father and all good fathers want to hear and be there for their kids. And so he says, first and foremost, when you pray, recognize, recognize your position to God the Father. And then he says, but don't let that detour you from understanding your posture before God because he's not just your father, he is hallowed and he's not common. So just because he's your dad doesn't mean he's ordinary and know and sit and live in the tension of those two things that he is my father, but he's bigger and better than any father I've seen. That's why I pray to him. So once you get your position and, and once you get your perspective of God, he says, then we can ask for stuff, you know? He says, then you can start with the petitions. And so he says, the first one should be recognizing who God is. I want more of that God in my present. He said, so your will be done. May your kingdom come here. May people see your goodness here. And then he says, and this was last week, he asked for this simple idea of of give us this day our daily bread. And and we walked through how this one was difficult. It's difficult because we live in a time and in a place where we don't need nor do we depend on things well. We live in a time and place where we have what we need, where affluence is the grace of God in a lot of cases. And because of that, it's hard for us to come back to this idea that we're daily dependent on anything outside of ourselves because we invest in the 401ks so that we won't have to one day, you know? It's a simple idea that we've convinced ourselves that maybe we don't need God every single day. And when we don't think we need God every single day, we're trusting in our own deity and not his, our ability to just create and sustain life. And so he says in the middle of this prayer, don't forget that you need God every day. Physically and spiritually, don't forget. And for us, dependence is hard. 
And so he says, pray this way. Pray that you might recognize your position in front of God. Pray that your posture might be one that looks up at a God who's bigger than you. Pray that his will come and be done and pray. Pray every day that you never forget that you need God. And then right next, what he says is, Father, forgive. Or forgive so that we might forgive others. And this one's hard too. Because it gets to the heart of something that oftentimes caused a lot of pain. And so... Before we get into our text today, we're going to do what we do every week. We're going to pray to start our day for two reasons. One, we have two goals at Crossroads on Sunday mornings. One is we want to know God. And what we mean by that is we want to open the scriptures and realize that I can study God for the rest of my days and your days and the days of the person next to you and never get to the end of God. And that's not scary. That's beautiful because it shows his majesty and his might, right? It's this idea that God is never ending in our capacity to understand his goodness. And that's heaven one day and I can't wait. It's this idea that we keep studying God because there's not an end to how big and mighty and good he is. And so we open the scriptures and we trust that God speaks to us. Even if we've read this story before, or even if we've read this text before, we trust that God will speak to us through the Holy Spirit that resides in believers in Jesus and change us, that he is making us look more like his son. And that happens every time we open the word in community. It happens every time we ask God to teach us something. And that means that the Spirit's working in you, and so you come to this place not as a critical observer, but as an active participant saying, God, what do you have for me today? I'm here, and I want to learn and know you. And then two, we want to experience God. Mind, will, emotion, he made us with all those things and they're all beautiful and so we worship God and we start and we end in worship as a response to God's goodness and so as we open the word we realize that it ends with the idea that we know and experience God who's good and never ending and bigger than us and near. So I'm going to ask that um, if you're comfortable you just pray to yourself a little bit when I prompt you to that God might reveal something in your heart, that the Holy Spirit might do some work this morning, that we might grow and change because it's active evidence that God is faithful and good. And then I'm gonna ask that you pray for me, that I say things that make sense this morning. Sound good? All right, let's pray. God, I'm thankful um, for the time that we have together. I'm thankful that there's never an end to your goodness. I'm thankful that every time I open the scriptures, you teach me, you lead me, you guide me. Spirit, I pray that you teach us this morning. If you're comfortable, I just ask that you take a couple seconds and you pray to yourself and ask that the Spirit reveal um, God to you this morning in ways that you need to know and hear. I want to ask that you pray for me, that God speaks through me in our time together, the Spirit does a work, not because of any gifting, but because God is good, um, that we might know God more. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Matthew chapter 6. So this text uh, depends on your faith tradition. Andy brought it up, but there's different ways to read this bad boy. I thought about when we walked in this morning having different signs like at a wedding, you know. There's three kind of ways to read it. Growing up, some of you might have heard it said, you know, forgive us our sins. This is Luke chapter 11. Jesus prays a similar prayer. 
Some of you might have said growing up when you recited the Lord's Prayer, because that's what you're taught at an early age if you do the church thing. Some of you might have thought growing up, it says, Father, forgive our sins, for we forgive everyone who sins against us. I want it to be like this wedding thing, and like that section is two rows over there, you know? And then a little bigger section is my Methodist friends. And it would have been something like the, the idea of trespasses, that's how I grew up. Father, forgive our trespasses and, and let us forgive those who trespass against us, you know. But then we're in the South, and this is Baptist country. And so a huge swath of it would have been the right side, and it would have been this idea of debts. Father, forgive our debts that we might forgive the debts of others, essentially. And I want to spend some time at the very beginning, and I want to talk about where those three words came from. I want to talk about why those three words are in different translations, because I think that as we look at all three, we get a clearer picture for what the text is trying to convey. So if you don't know, the Bible is written, the New Testament's written in Greek. Jesus probably spoke Aramaic, so when Matthew wrote this, he's translating what Jesus says into Greek, and then we translate it from Greek into English. And, and what you do as a translator of the Bible is you say, here's the word in the Greek, <clears throat> and sometimes we have words that match up right away, and sometimes we don't. And we say, hey, I think this word in the English most closely conveys the meaning of the original text. And so sometimes when you read scriptures in different versions, that's why there's different words being used. And usually they're synonymous or extremely similar. If they're not, then somebody did a bad job translating. And so one of the ways that this is translated is from Luke 11. It's, Father, um, forgive our sins. For we also forgive anyone who sins against us. The Greek word there that's used when people translate it this way is hamartia. It literally is the word for sin in the New Testament. It's the study of sin when you look at hamartiology. It's the idea, if you've never heard of it talked about before, literally the word means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. It means that there was a bullseye. I shot my arrow that way and I just didn't hit the bullseye. It connotates this idea from the Old Testament that you have completely missed God's standard for good. It goes back to the idea that God had a rule and a way that was good. He said, live into this. And you tried and you fell short. You tried and you missed the mark. You did not live into or up to God's idea of goodness. It's an archery term that means you weren't accurate. And we see it. In Romans, when it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, for all of us missed the mark, all of us missed God's ideal of good. And so when in Luke 11, it's translated this way, it means literally forgive us because we've missed God's idea of goodness. It's sin 101 that we have missed what he said we should be. And that's great. And I think that idea is absolutely in our text, but then we move on to another way it's translated. Let's go to the Baptist version, right? So this idea of debts. And most of your versions probably use this word, Father, forgive our debts as we um, have forgiven our debtors. The Greek word here, ophelema, means to that which is owed. It is in every way, this is actually the Greek word used in Matthew 11, and it, it literally means I owed a debt that I didn't pay. Father, forgive us the money we couldn't pay you. May we forgive those who owed us money. And in order to understand why Matthew chose to use this word to convey what Jesus was talking about is because in the first century world, debts were a big deal. In the first century world, they operated differently than we do. They operated out of an honor-shame culture. 
They operated under a culture that said, my family name is the most important good and I would do nothing. I will do nothing to besmirch that name. Debts besmirched the name of your family. It meant that you didn't live up to your word. It meant that you couldn't pay what you said you were going to pay. Debts were actually the number one reason in the Roman world people were in prison. They had debtor's prisons. If you went into debt, two things happened. One, you became a slave, you and your family, because of the shame until you paid it off. Or two, you went to prison. Debts were a huge source of shame in the first century world. They're a huge problem in the first century world. So, so when it's translated debts, what it's getting at is more than just, I owe some money that I couldn't pay. It's more than just, I owed something that I couldn't afford. One commentator wrote a book on debt in the first century world, and he said, the issue of indebtedness, loss of land, and heavy taxation loomed large, and the urban elites in Rome, Jerusalem, Tiberias, and elsewhere in the big cities, they benefited greatly in this system. The significance of the social problem of Jesus' day was the growth of indebtedness and the swelling of the ranks of those displaced from the land because of debt. Chronic indebtedness ordinarily meant catastrophe for ancient peasantries. Jesus is speaking to peasants. And he's saying, this is the biggest problem you have and it's the biggest source of shame for you. So what he's saying is, forgive me for my biggest source of shame and problem and may you forgive others for their biggest source of shame and problem. It carries more than just the idea of money. The problem with that word, that translation in our current context is we don't have the same relationship to debt they had. We, we don't, not only just don't have a problem with that, debt is a currency from which our culture functions. For example, just some numbers at you. The, st- the average student will graduate with $47,671 in debt, right? They're 22 years old. They don't know what that is yet. It's Monopoly money because they've just had a part-time job at Papa John's, you know? <laughs> They're like, I can pay that back. They have no concept of money, but they have 50 grand in debt. If you take it a step farther... The average auto loan for the average family is $28,000. The average mortgage is $184,000 in debt. The average credit card debt for an individual in our country for an adult is $7,000. If you roll that up, the average family has about $135,000 in debt, right? And look, this is not, hear me, this is not me saying debt is bad. This is not me saying get out of debt. I'll leave that to Dave Ramsey, okay? That is not my job this morning, I'm simply, in the first service, I said Gordon Ramsay. I got that wrong. Um, <laughs> I caught it, but it was, I'm a foodie guy, you know? I'm not a finance guy. So I'm going to leave that to Dave Ramsey, all right? And here's the deal. It's not in any way to disparage debt. I think debt can be fine if you manage it well, unless you have that conversation with somebody else. My point is that we don't have the same relationship to debt that the first century world did. Our governments, our country has $22 trillion worth of debt. And again, I'm not making a moral commentary on them, simply saying we're okay with it for the most part because we use debt to our advantage. And so in our culture, it is not a source or a point in any way of shame. It was in the first century world. And so when he translates, forgive our debt, sometimes it loses some of the punch and of the weight because all we see is dollar signs. And we think, oh, sure, yeah, I owed something. That's okay. I'll file chapter 11 and move on, you know? It's not that. And so about 1600 and change, there's a guy that came along named William Tyndale, and he translated it another way, and it stuck for a long time. And this is the one that I learned growing up. He says, forgive us our trespasses and forgive those who trespass against us. The word there is peripatoma, and we actually see it in the verses following. 
So in verse 14 and 15, it says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you. What it means there is when it says trespasses, some of your versions have transgressions, same idea, same Greek word there. <coughs> but he said, I think the, the meaning of this text is really more than just debts, it's transgressions. And so what he said was, even though the Greek word is debt here, I think this fits it better. And let me tell you why he did that is because he said the difference between debt and transgression is one is personal. A debt in our culture is just something you owe, usually money. A transgression is when you violate the rights of someone else for your benefit. It's when you violate your, their good for your good. It's personal. And so I, I personally, I think all three of these, I think all three of these kind of round out the idea of what Jesus was going for, but I love the idea of transgression because I think it makes it personal for you and me. I think when we've been sinned against, and you can fill in the blank with when you've been hurt in the past by somebody else's sin. You hurt and you feel this rising sense of injustice because that's what it is. It's painful and it's unjust and it's somebody else violating your rights. It shouldn't be. It's what happened in the first sin in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve said, I'm going to step into the space of God and choose. I'm going to violate that which was God's choice and I'm going to be my own God so that I can do this thing. They trespassed against God. They violated his good for their seeming good. Didn't work out too well. So when it's translated, forgive the trespasses so we could forgive the trespasses of those who trespassed against us, what it means there, it carries this different connotation of, of not just I missed the mark and not just I owe some money that I can't pay, but I have missed the mark and I do owe this incredible debt, but also this debt that I owe isn't just dollars and cents, it's personal personal. So then when we talk about forgiveness, if we do it outside the confines of hurt, pain, and it being personal, we've missed the point of forgiveness because that's why forgiveness is hard. And I'm never going to get up here and mitigate the hardness of forgiveness by saying it should be easy because it didn't hurt. Because forgiveness costs something because something was violated. And so when we talk about how we translate this verse, I think all three of those round out. So you can choose whatever one you want. They're kind of synonymous in a way. But I love the idea of how they work together in the different translations over the years. So I'm going to use trespasses going forward. And you got to understand that Jesus said this phrase in the first century in a Roman world that valued strength over compassion. There was a philosopher in Rome, and it was said actually by quite a few of them, Rome the Roman world didn't view compassion as something to aspire towards. They did strength. And so they had, they had a phrase. They said, mercy is a disease of the soul. Forgiveness too. And so you have Jesus coming around saying, hey, when you pray, pray like this. Pray, God, forgive me so that I might pass on that forgiveness to others. And in the Roman world, I think they heard this and thought, but that's a disease of the soul. And so we get into our text when it says, Father, forgive us our trespasses. We have to start with one place, this idea that trespasses is a violation against the good of someone else for my seeming good. We have to start with this idea fundamentally that sin hurts, trespasses hurt, violating people brings pain. And sometimes when we think of God for some reason, we forget that God feels, you know? We think that God is big and mighty, and so sins don't really affect God. It just 
bounces off of him like bullets off Superman's chest. And he'll get over it, and he's fine, and he's bigger than that, and he knows how it ends. So sin is not a big deal, but that's not the picture that the scriptures paint of sin. God created us good. God created a good world. And when we violate that every single time, it hurts the character of the God who loves us and created good for us. And we see it. In Ephesians 4, he's talking to the church there, and he says, hey, um, I have some advice for you. This is Paul, and he says, um, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You must put away all bitterness, anger, wrath, quarreling, and slanderous talk, indeed, all malice. He's saying, don't fall into sin within your community of believers, because when you do that, you grieve the Holy Spirit, <laughs> Sometimes we forget, we know that sin hurts us, we forget that sin hurts God. It grieves him because we trespass against him. It says in Genesis 6, this is the Noah narrative before the flood. God says that sin was everywhere. It was all the time. It was so pervasive because it had gotten so out of control that everything man did all the time was only evil. And this phrase follows before he talks to Noah. It says the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth. He was grieved in his heart. As I thought about the nature of sin and trespassing and do I realize that sin hurts God? I kept coming back to the story of the prodigal son. I don't know how familiar you are with the story. I'm going to briefly summarize it today, but the story of the prodigal son is the story of a rich family, a dad and two boys. And the younger of the boy decides that he wants his inheritance. And so the elder child did everything right. He showed up on time. He was responsible. He worked the fields. Type A personalities have existed for life when it comes to the oldest child, right? And he was that. And then he had the guy, the son beneath him that wanted a little more attention, that didn't like his family, that thought he could do better on his own. And so he goes to his dad, who was kind and loving and good. And he said, I want my money now. I want my inheritance now. <laughs> and then again, it's not just like I would go to my dad and say, can I have my inheritance now as a down payment on a home in the first century world? If you went to your father and said, I want my inheritance now, you essentially said, and this is what he would have heard, I wish you were dead. I want to pretend like you are. He went to his dad and he said, I want what would be mine if you were dead. Thank you, please. You know? If you don't think that in that moment, the father who'd given good things to his kid was absolutely hurt by his kid, then I think that's how God feels about us when we sin. He says, I've given you good things and it's not good enough for you. And so the father in the story of the prodigal says, okay. And he gives it anyway. And what it shows us is even though our sin is a violation, it's a trespass, it's, 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 it, it hurts the, the, the heart of God as it grieves him, God still gives because God is a giver. Over and over and over again, we see in scripture that God is a giver even at his own expense. Uh, Miroslav Volf wrote a book on forgiveness and it's phenomenal. And he said in his book, for a lover, it's more blessed to give than to receive, even when giving pierces the lover's heart. We have to realize about God and we realize about God and forgiveness. Why does God keep giving forgiveness? Because God is a giver fundamentally. And it goes back to the very beginning. So when you think about God and creation, God did not create because he needed something. It's important to know. Because if we think God created because he needed us, then we have now propelled ourselves into some kind of relationship with God where he needs something from us. God, in all the ways, was self-satisfied in himself before anything came into existence. The reason God created wasn't out of need. It was out of joy to give. So God looked in the Godhead and he said, 
We are loving and good and joyful and we don't want to keep that to ourselves. We want to show that to other things that we create. And so we created. From the very beginning, God has been a giver. He didn't create out of need. He created out of joy and generosity. And it's the same thing we see in the story of the prodigal. It's the same thing we see when we ask God for forgiveness, even though it hurts the heart of God when we sin, God continues to give. And when we talk about forgiveness, we have to parse words just a little bit. There, there's a couple different ways this looks. So when we talk about forgiveness, um, there's two, we're going to call it different kinds of forgiveness. There's positional and relational. Let me flesh that out a little bit for you. So there's positional forgiveness. And what that means is that, that when you came to faith in Jesus, when that first time you said, I know that I need, I know I haven't lived up to the mark, I know that I have a debt, and I know that I've trespassed against a good God who created, the moment that happened and you said, Jesus, I need you, all your sins were forgiven. All of them. All past sins, all present sins, all future sins. That's why we say at Crossroads, we believe in grace no matter. No matter what you do today, God won't love you any less tomorrow because you've already been forgiven. When God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And that is gloriously good. That doesn't lead us to a place, this is great, I can do whatever I want. If you really understand it, it leads us to a place of understanding that goodness is off the charts. How do I press in and get closer to that goodness? It says in Colossians 2, And even though you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he nevertheless, God, made you alive with Jesus, him, having forgiven all your transgressions. He has destroyed what was against you, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in his decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. It's positional forgiveness in Jesus it means you can't lose your salvation because you're made righteous. It's the idea that six months ago, I had a kid, and once that kid came into this world, I looked up and realized there's no going back. Like, this forever changes my tomorrow. No matter what that kid does, no matter how many times I have to change her clothes during the day, no matter how little she sleeps, no matter what happens in her angsty teenage years, no matter what happens, she's my kid. Positionally, she will always, always, always be my kid. And that's what Jesus says when he says we're forgiven. So all your sins have already been forgiven. But Jesus says in this prayer, Father, forgive, like that hasn't happened. Because this is a prayer to the people of God to pray every day. And then we have verses like this that talk about relational forgiveness in 1 John 1, 9. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. What's happening here is not us understanding or realizing that all our sins weren't forgiven or some kind of Catholic theology that you have to keep asking for forgiveness. And if you don't, God might miss one. That's not what's happening here. That's not an application of the atonement of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that even though positionally you are forgiven, sin gets in the way of relationships. It does. Sin gets in the way of relationships. And sometimes that means that we need to recognize that and confess and remember that he's already forgiven us. The seminary prof, and he says... When we confess sin, we're not experiencing a new justification, but a renewed application of our justification. He says, when we go, when we ask God to forgive us, not to be re-justified, but to walk before him in confidence that Christ has already or has paid it all. It's the idea that if you follow the story of the prodigal, fast forward a couple of years and the kid lost all his money and was sleeping with pigs, which is the worst fate if you're a Jew. And he's sleeping in filth and he says, I can go home. I can go home. And he does. At the end of the story, he comes home to his dad and 
He meets his dad and he says, dad, I'm so sorry. And he says, you're still my kid, nothing changes. He says, I'm so sorry. He said, kill the fatted calf, let's go. It restored his relationship with his father. So we have this idea when Jesus says, this is what he's talking about here, when he says, Father, forgive, when we ask God to forgive us, it's not a, hey, Jesus' blood didn't count enough for the enormity of my sins. It's asking forgiveness of God. is isn't asking him to re-justify, but to restore and renew our relationship with him in the first place. Because we come to God and we say, hey, I've still missed the mark in my yesterday. I've still transgressed against you, and that still hurts you still violates your goodness because I thought I had my own in mind. And so he says every day, say, Father, forgive me. Every day be reminded that we've been justified. Every day be reminded that we have sin. Every day be reminded that God is a God who never stops giving even at his own expense. But he goes on, he says the other side of the coin because it doesn't stop there. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we just read the verse, but in 14 and 15, he fleshes that out a little bit. And he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you don't, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And and if you're just reading this casually, you might look at that and say, well, is God saying that if I don't forgive, he won't forgive me? Is God creating a system of not grace, but merit? No. God's using a figure of speech here, Jesus, to, to simply relate the idea that forgiven people forgive others. That if you've seen it, you will, because you understand how good it is, you will emulate that in your own life. What he's saying is there's no way that you can understand the gravity of God's forgiveness and not want to do the same thing in your life to those around you. So if you've been forgiven by God, I'm willing to bet you will forgive others in your life. So, for example, uh, my daughter is six months old, and I, I am just not, we've talked about this before, I'm not really an affectionate person, you know? It's just not my strength, it's not my gifting. My wife and I did the little five strength finder, five uh, love languages thing before we got married and then after we got married, and one of those is physical touch. And I think it was out of 50 this test we took, and Sarah took it, and she got a 47. I took it, I got a zero. Zero. I didn't even get a one. I got a zero on this bad boy. So every once in a while, my wife will look at me and say, my physical touch meter's low. And I'll say, great. We'll sit on the couch. I'll throw my arm around her and I'll wait. And about two minutes later, I'll say, how are we doing? We full? And she'll say, no. And I'll say, all right, you just tell me when, right? I'm super compassionate, guys. So I had a kid and things changed a little bit. I, I'm not kidding. Like, so we had this kid. I'm not an affectionate guy. I can't stop kissing my daughter. I know that sounds really weird. Like when I feed her or when we're just hanging out, sometimes she'll push my face away. I don't care. I help make this kid, you know? And so I will just take her and like, I'll kiss her cheeks because they're chubby. And I, I just, I love to do it. Okay. So my daughter has now tried to emulate that because that's what her mom and I do all the time. And she tries to kiss us back and it starts like this, right? Yeah. So... She's just started this about, oh, two or three weeks ago, and so we'll kiss her, then she'll look at us, and you'll go, ah, right? Is this really creepy? Like, are you going to kiss me or eat me? Let's risk it, okay? Um, this is step one, and then step two always happens. It's let's close our eyes for protection like sharks, all right? <laughs> so she closes, she, she looks at you, she does this, she closes her eyes, and then she lunges, right? <laughs> and that's it. And she latches on to whatever body part you have and just sits there like, ah, right? That's it. That's it. This is how she kisses. 
I am praying that her technique doesn't change till she's at least 25, all right? <laughs> that, will, that will help me really mitigate the stress of her adolescent years. I'm going to tell her, this is what you do. Don't stop, all right? It's going to be great. My point is, my daughter doesn't do that because she wants to be fed or because she wants to be hugged or because she wants to be kissed. She does it because she's seen us do it so many times and she can't help but do it to us back, even if it doesn't look anything like what we did to her. And, and that's the beauty of forgiveness because God says, I've forgiven you, know that, live in that space, know that sin hurts me like it hurts you and I've still, even though you violated my goodness, trespassed against me, I've still forgiven you and so you'll want to do that to others and the beauty and the comfort of this analogy and the beauty and the comfort of God is sometimes, most of the time, we don't do it nearly as well as God does but we try, but we try. I come up woefully short of forgiving like God does. I come up woefully short of forgiving like God does, you know? Because sin hurts. Just like it hurts God, it hurts us. And here's the deal. I'm not going to spend this morning and give you examples of forgiveness or examples of trespassing or examples of people violating other people's good. I could. I could read stories from other parts of the world. I could read stories from parts of our own world. I could give you stories of me. But I'm willing to bet whatever narrative's playing in your head is good enough because you have been violated. Because people have asked for your forgiveness. I'm willing to bet that when we talk about forgiveness, it's hard for all of us. And when we say things like forgiveness is easy and it should be quick, and if God can do it instantly, why can't we? Because we're not God, you know? And so when we talk about, for a couple minutes, what forgiveness is and what it isn't and how we do it, I want to start by saying that it's hard and it's difficult and it's not instant but it's something that God calls us to work towards because we've been forgiven. There's this idea that oftentimes forgiveness is a bunch of things that, that it is not. You know, I've, I hear over and over again that forgiveness um, is forgetting what happened to you. Forgiveness is not in any way forgetfulness. Sometimes people even throw a verse out there in Psalm 103 and it says that basically that as far as the east is from the west, God removes the guilt of the afflictions against his people. Psalm 1 through 12. And they'll use that as a proof text as they see God forgets your sin. First of all, God doesn't forget your sin. He removes the consequences of your sin as far as east is from the west, meaning you will never one day experience the eternal consequences of your sin because Jesus took that. But here's the deal. God doesn't forget your sin because you don't get to be omniscient and forget at the same time. All right? That's not how that works. God remembers because it hurt him, just like we remember. So sometimes people say forgiving is forgetting. It is not forgetting. It's choosing to move on even though we still experience the pain of what caused the need for forgiveness in the first place. So forgiving is not forgetfulness because that's just not wise. And then two, I've heard oftentimes that forgiving is some kind of, when we forgive, we, we forego justice in some way. We're saying that injustice and trespassing and sin and debt is okay no, we're not. No, we're not. Uh, Miroslav Volf again said this. He said, the difference between justice and forgiveness. To be just is to condemn the fault, and because of the fault, to condemn the doer as well. To forgive is to condemn the fault, but to spare the doer. That's what the forgiving God does. This idea that forgiving isn't foregoing justice because that's not what God does when he forgives us. It's simply saying justice didn't happen and there's a cost to that, and I'm probably going to have to live with that and not get that back. But because God did that for me, I'm willing to do that for you. And that's what makes it really difficult. And that's what makes it really painful. And that's what sometimes makes it a process. 
I've also heard that, that forgiving is the same thing as reconciliation, and that's not true either. Uh, forgiving is one person choosing a position before somebody. Reconciliation is two people cho- making that same choice. And I can give you story after story of, of times in my life and lives of people at this church that I know well that have forgiven where no reconciliation happens because the other party won't. And so just because there is no reconciliation doesn't mean that we're not called to forgive. And sometimes, sometimes we're, we're called to forgive and wait and pray that reconciliation might happen. Sometimes we're called to forgive and say, God, please bring this person back. Please, please restore the relationship. But just because restoration isn't present doesn't mean forgiveness doesn't already happen. We're not called to it. And finally, um, tolerance and forgiveness are two different things. And I wanted to hit on this because I think the tolerance is a big idea in our culture. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it's different than forgiveness. Forgiveness is being for something and someone. Tolerance is putting up with something and someone. There's a difference there. Tolerance takes the low bar and says, I'm going to sit there. Forgiveness says, I'm going to be for you again. I tolerate broccoli, okay? It's disgusting. It looks like little oak trees, and we live in double oak, and I understand how we do that to each other, all right? It's like we're eating our own, everybody. The next time, try it. It's so gross. I am for french fries, all right? I just am. It's the best food. I cannot not eat french fries. I love this stuff. Tolerance and forgiveness is not the same thing. We are called not just to tolerate, but to forgive. There was a, a Puritan in the 1600s named Thomas um, Watson, and he defined a love, how he defined forgiveness. He says, when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. That's when we've forgiven. It's hard. It's really, really difficult. And it's difficult because there was a violation that took place. It's difficult because you have to accept that you're probably never going to recover everything that that person's sin costs you. Go back to the son in the prodigal story. He came home and he said, Dad, I'm sorry. And the dad never got that money back. He never got half his fortune back or a third of it. He said, okay. He was willing to live and suffer the injustice because that's what God does for us. It's the nature of what forgiveness is. And God says, if you've been forgiven like this, then forgive others. And really what what you see is every time forgiveness actually happens, it is a grace of God. And I'm not going to say it's a miracle, but it's got to be close sometimes. Again, Mirshav Wolf says, whatever the reasons when forgiveness happens, it's always a miracle of grace. The obstacles in its way are immense. Because I'm willing to bet, like me, you've had things happen and you believe, you fundamentally believe that people aren't worthy of the forgiveness that they want or God's asked you to give. Because the pain's deep. And so, what I think about in those moments, my favorite example of forgiveness in the scripture actually isn't the prodigal. It's, this is why well, I'm a pastor, it's Jesus. When <laughs> um, Jesus is, is dying on the cross, he's dying on the cross. He says seven phrases on the cross, seven phrases, because every time he has to push himself up to breathe, he can say things, but he only pushes himself up because the nail shoved into his, into his feet. And so it's incredibly painful rubbing his back that had 40 lashes on it against wood that was not sanded down, everybody. And it's a terrible, terrible, excruciating way to die. So to speak hurt immensely. 
And one of the times he chooses to go through the pain of speaking, he looks at the people that literally put him up there that are now playing dice games for his clothing. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And here's the rub. Is that when we talk about forgiveness as followers of Jesus, it says, Father, forgive so that we might forgive. And what it does there is it correlates our capacity to forgiveness not being how we've seen or been shown forgiveness, but by how much Jesus has forgiven us. And that's hard. Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit up here and I'm gonna say this with all compassion and with all love and with all humility. We go to the extremes, probably the most extreme you've ever been hurt, and you're gonna say to me, does that mean I have to forgive this? Yes. God says, because I've forgiven you of everything. We want to be people that no matter what the offense are working towards forgiveness in our lives and in the lives of others because that's what God did for us. I see no place in scripture where it says unless they do X, Y, and Z. It's the call of God and the prayer of God. Remind us of how God has forgiven so that we might forgive. It's the idea that Jesus is our capacity. And sometimes we forget that because violations are painful, trespasses are painful. One author said, while we're smarting from the sting of sin, we need to remember that our Savior has scars. He has entered into the scrum of the world and he's felt the deep affliction that comes from sin in those moments when I don't want to forgive when it's too painful and too hard. I need to pray and remember, Father, forgive, and out of that, I will choose to forgive others because I've been forgiven much. It's the rhythm in which the people of God work. It's our prayer. So that's what it is, and that's how hard it is. Let's talk about why we need it. The necessity of forgiveness, it's not just so we can call ourselves good Christians, and and it's not just so we can check a box and God can be happy with us. It's none of that. The necessity of forgiveness is because we need to be givers like God is a giver. I can give you actually stats. that They started studying, um, physically studying, the effects of forgiveness on people about 15 years ago. And, And for example... The Journal of Behavioral Medicine in June 2011 had an article that said, forgive to live, forgiveness, health, and longevity. They said, if you simply practice conditional forgiveness, which is not the forgiveness that Jesus talks about of others, it's associated with the risk of all causes of mortality. You live longer if you forgive. Johns Hopkins came out with a study a couple years ago, and they found that the act of forgiveness can reap huge rewards for your health, Lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels and sleep, reducing pain, blood pressure, and levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. Research points to an increase in the forgiveness health connection as you age. So part of it, if you just want to camp out on the physical, why should you do the hard work of forgiving? Because it's better for your health. Lewis Smead wrote a book on forgiveness and he said to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. (laughs) It's the idea that forgiveness is more than just something we're called to. It makes our lives better. Because at the heart of it, forgiveness, the Greek word there literally means set free. And any good, any good Jewish boy, when Jesus talked about forgiveness and said forgiveness, thought back to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 described the biggest Jewish day of the year, the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would come in and he would get a goat and he would announce all the blessings, I mean all the sins over the goat for the people for the year. And he'd say, this goat now carries with it all the sin of our people for this entire year. 
And then he'd cut them loose and say, run. And the goat would run out of the camp. And what that symbolized was simply the sins of the people exiting the presence of the people because God took care of it. It foreshadowed Jesus. And so he's saying that what forgiveness does is it sets us free from the consequences of the trespasses either we cause towards others or they cause towards us. The Aramaic word forgive literally means to untie. And what that means is I'm going to untie myself from the consequences of, from the feelings of bitterness in the lives of those who have violated me. Because here's the deal. is as people, we connect through love and we connect through bitterness. We make these ties and connections towards people and you are just as easy to connect with somebody over bitterness as you are over love. When somebody sins against you, don't tell me that you don't get on their Facebook profile and look and hope and wish bad things on them, you know? But what this says is that when we forgive, when we set free, when we untie it, saying we will not be held captive, we will not be slaves towards the bitterness that grows inside of us over the violation because God is not towards us. What it's saying at the core is that forgiveness is all about freedom. Finding it and giving it. So the big idea when Jesus says, pray this way, when Jesus says, pray like this, these Pharisees that just use words without meaning, he's saying, pray, forgive me, Father, so that I might forgive others. And there's this connotation that forgiven people are forgiving people, finding and giving freedom found through a forgiving God. He's saying, be a people that seek after freedom. And that only happens when you are forgiven and when you do forgive. It's this beautiful picture of why we need it, even though it's hard. Remembering that that's where God started with us. My favorite part of the story of the prodigal is towards the end when the son starts coming back to the father. I couldn't imagine the anxiety and building up with this kid, you know. He'd blown through all the money. He had, a, had an older brother at home that did everything right. And I don't know if you guys can relate to that, but I can. It's no fun. And then you have this idea that when he comes home, it's the guilt and shame of everybody knowing his business and why he's there. He's not coming back on a triumphal entry saying, I doubled the money, I have all this stuff. He's coming back, tail between his legs, saying, I have nothing. He lost his dad's stuff. He's honor, shame, culture, shaming his family. And so the story says that, that, that the kid was on the horizon and the father was walking around and, and the father saw his kid. And the father started running towards his child, you know? In the first century world, uh, I'm just going to be blunt with this, old people didn't run, <laughs> right? They didn't run because running wasn't seen as dignified. Because if you're older, you're mature, and really you made time about you, and you were not impetuous, and so when you were older, you didn't run. It was not dignified for somebody to do, and this guy said, I don't care about dignified. I with joy will run towards my kid and offer him forgiveness and freedom in the moment when he feels trapped. And here's the beauty of Jesus. That's exactly what he did for us when he sprinted into our world to be our sacrifice. And so we're going to end with communion because as we take the body and the blood that represents the sacrifice of Jesus to pay the cost for the violation that we had against God when we trespassed in the first place, it's a reminder of our freedom. It's a reminder of the extent that Jesus went to so that we might be forgiven and experience freedom. And it's also a charge to live that out in the lives of those around us, to treat others that way. Not just so that your life will live a little longer and you won't die of high blood pressure, even though great, but because people need to see Jesus too, because freedom spreads 
because it shows people what God is all about. Father, forgive me so that I might forgive others and we all might walk in freedom. Let me pray and then you guys can come when you want to and and take communion and it'll end in a song. God, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for the extent that you went to forgive me. (laughs) Sometimes I forget or I gloss over it because I hear the story so many times about the sacrifice of Christ and I hear so many times about my sin and I hear so many times about my forgiveness. I forget the cost of that and the pain involved in that and I forget that when I don't want to forgive because it hurts a lot too that you've done more than I have. And it's a charge and it's a call to keep going. It's a charge and it's a call to remember the freedom that we might have in you and to be reminded that our call is to show others that freedom too. So as we take communion, I pray that we're overjoyed by a God who's a giver. (laughs) And it's a charge to us to give out freedom as well, one day at a time as we forgive and point people to a God who's good. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.